Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good evening, good afternoon, good whatever, good morning, good, I don't know, good whomever, however I may find you. This is Alan Averill, this is Agitators Anonymous. Now, this episode was recorded and released a while ago on my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Alan Averill, A-V-E-R-I-L-L, the man who shall conquer in April. There you go, Norman surname. Exactly. Well, anyway. Over on the Patreon, there's demos, there's rehearsals, there's uh, conversations, there's discussing books, all sorts of things, and also bonus podcasts and things that come out long before they come out on the normal podcast. Go and have a look if you want. This is a very in-depth discussion and look at the recording process, what goes into making an album, what goes into the day-to-day, how you plan, how you project, also a lot of stuff about how I look at lyric writing, um, rhythmic structures, approaching various things, my attitude on what I'm focused on and definitely what I'm not focused on, all that kind of thing. I understand that uh, throughout all of the episodes, sometimes my ramblings on politics, culture, my daft take on some things, my ironic, sarcastic black humour, my gallows humour, leave some people on the shore because... They are fans of Primordial, they are fans of Dread Sovereign or April Men or whatever other music I've made and they want to know specific things about music. I've realised that there are several different kinds of podcasts. There are the ones that are super in-depth with minute detail, those sort of true crime kind of things. And then there's the rambles and whatever else. Mine takes on the modality of rambling probably more often than some people like because I think some people would like to know 
um, very specific things about drum recording and that kind of thing. Now, that wasn't originally my intention in doing a podcast to make it only about those things, because that's not really what interests me. In fact, you know, back in the day when I would have picked up a magazine, if a band started off um, telling me about how much they've progressed as a musician and the this, that, and the other, I would just instantly turn off. I don't care which thrash band all of a sudden started wearing a Rush t-shirt and decided they could play. It was of no interest at all to me. I wanted to know um, more about the lyrics. I wanted to know more about the person. I wanted to know more about the atmospherics, the aesthetics, all that kind of thing. And then gradually, of course, as black metal took over, you wanted to know all about their worldview or whatever else. Certainly, I didn't care what the bass amp combo was, but I do want to... I do understand that for a lot of people, that's um, something they're really interested in. So this um, podcast is just a, a very in-depth ramble about recording, about recording techniques, about approaches. Um, it may not surprise anybody to discover that Irish people kind of fly by the seat of their pants when it comes to organisation. We aren't the most, um, you know, structured, organised people. I think I could say that as a sort of national trait without getting into too much trouble. We tend to leave a certain percentage of things to chance, to fortune, to the weird, to fate, to whatever you want to call it. Um, and that's just sort of our way, I think, as a people. Maybe younger people and younger generations of musicians are different, but certainly this was the way Primordial always left a certain element to chance. And that's part of trusting in yourself as a musician. But that's what I went on to talk about. So, um, www dot hate couture 616 h-a-t-e-c-o-u-t-u-r-e 616.com use the promo code alan and you'll get free shipping loads of hateful yet tasteful apparel nasty t-shirts grim stuff about tyrants and serial killers go and have a look um also second one www.metalblade.com if you're in north america put in the promo code aa podcast and you will get 10 percent off so I don't know if you want to go and buy that new Cannibal Corpse album, um, Dread Sovereign, Primordial, Fate's Warning, Six Feet Under, I don't know. So many things to choose from for over the last 40 years. Go and take a look. All right, let's get into it. This is, as I said, and originally, uh, originally this appeared on my Patreon. Lots of things like that go up there. Um, but this one I felt was maybe too good to sort of not um, throw it out there to the wider audience. So here we go. Let's get into it. The recording process. So I just thought I'd make a little podcast about recording, about the recording process, maybe a day in the life um, within the studio that goes into making a record. Um, some of the things that have changed over the years from back in the day to now. Um, fundamentally, they are more or less the same for a band like Primordial who still go into the studio. But much of the technology has changed in that many bands now record remotely, as in record their files themselves, send them to each other, mix independently. So it's very much changed since the 80s and the 90s, that's for sure. But I just thought I'd do maybe a little ramble across the process um, how you begin and how you add the layers, all that kind of thing. As as a listener, maybe there are things about it that you've never thought about before or never realized. So for Primordial, usually 
we are, I would say, 60 to 70% ready with the songwriting. If a, if an album has, let's say for argument's sake, eight songs, usually we have five or six, maybe six, more or less 80%, 90% ready. Um, and then bones of one or two others. And very often we write in the studio. We'll come in early in the morning, lay out the ideas, put them together. I think that it's important as a musician to trust in your instinct, to trust in your gut a bit. And we were never one of those bands that um, rehearsed songs to the nth degree. I know of bands, um, peers and friends who make 20 different demos of songs. They have them minutely worked out and they have tiny harmonic differences, um, back in vocal differences worked out. And those are huge debating issues. Primordial never really did that. There's a certain sort of reckless um, trusting in your instinct that goes into making a primordial album that I think is very important. And I also like the idea personally of having to work on the spot, having to cope with adversity. For example, being asked an hour before you finish your vocals for something like, okay, you need to finish this at 8 p.m. because we have a deadline. You have an hour to finish these lyrics. You need to get this right within the first one, two, three takes. For me, that's very important. And it galvanizes my creative instincts. Um, having too much time to think about things, I think, is the wrong way to make heavy metal. I think heavy metal rock music should be instinctual. I don't think you should be mixing and remixing and mixing down an album six, seven, eight, nine months after you've recorded it. Endlessly going back, tinkering with things. That's not my idea of how it should work at all. I think you need to go for it, push it, be reckless. Um, trust your instinct and just roll with it. Um, of course, you need to be, you know, rehearsed. You need to be or at least have a very focused idea of what you want to do. Going in with no plan whatsoever doesn't make any sense. But for me, I'll have lyrics written in all different places and I'll begin to piece them together. If it's Dread Sovereign, I'll have my riffs in my head. I'll write them down. I write them down numerically in relation to the notes. Uh, sometimes I'm thinking about songwriting sitting on a train and I'll write down the notes with numbers. I don't I won't have the guitar. I think of the note. I uh, think of the I suppose pitch it in my head and then think of the combination of notes and I'll just write them down. Uh, maybe an odd way to do it, but everybody has their odd ways of making a record, their little idiosyncrasies, the things that they do to make it come to its conclusion, to fruition, to creativity. Uh, and sometimes it's true that if you are traditionally a lyric writer or a singer, um, it's not very often that I would sing harmonies into my phone, but it has been known here and there. But very often I just write lyrics independently. I have books and books of lyrics um, all over the place. And sometimes I pick out an idea from 2002 and go, there's a nice two lines I wonder, could I write around them and write something now? And how does that make sense now, 10, 15 years later? Very similar to, I think, people who um, write riffs on the guitar. They go through old discs, old mini disc was a popular thing for a while. They go through old cassette recorders and they just pick out riffs. Certainly, I have old phones with lots and lots of riffs on them. Sometimes, I'm, as I said, I might think of a riff, pick up the guitar, play it and straight away just put the phone in front of the guitar, record onto um, voice memo and 
20, 30, 40 little 30 second, one minute bits later. And then when it comes around to songwriting, you sift through them and think, oh, that's not such a bad riff. Let's try that out. But it's very important for me that that trial and error process has to be done in a rehearsal room. It has to be done in person. Um, of course, this is amplified. My feelings on this and the situation that we're in now with lockdown and the pandemic um, where we well, it feels to me like we're being corralled into some sort of anti-human um, process of living, which I, you know, don't I think obviously well, I'm against. But um, when it comes to making music, I think it's very important to keep the humanity in making music, which means standing in a room with the people in your band arguing about, no, this riff must go here and how about this? And the energy that can only be created from people being in that room together, whether it's a gig or whether it's recording or whether it's rehearsing, that has to be fundamentally right at the heart of um, making music to me. I don't see or won't take part in writing remotely or trading files or anything like this. So... Anyway, the process of making an album for Primordial, we rehearse, you know, we'd usually start six to nine months before. Let's say we you pick a month in the year, let's say a March, and you say, OK, by October, we're going to have enough songs for an album. And then that's something to work towards. So you'll source a studio, you'll source an engineer, you'll just start discussing with people. Um, we're projecting to do this in six or seven or eight months. You have to fix a release date within the schedule of the label. The label has a lot of records to release. You can't just make the record and give it to them and go, hey, you need to release this in three months because it's a three-month process from handing over the final masters to the release date in theory, um, which includes pressing, promotion, all that kind of thing. But very often they have a packed and tight release schedule. So you have to book your place within that sometimes a year in advance. So you have to stick to deadlines. You can't just kind of wing it and go, oh, uh, we just made this and can you release this now? And it doesn't work like that. So let's say we, in February, March, begin to think about, okay, let's think about October, November. Um, and that gives you something to work towards. And like I said, you start to source and look at studios. Do you go abroad? Do you stay at home? There's very great um, there's very great rewards or very many positive things to be said for finding a studio that is away from where you live so you can fully concentrate on what you're doing, i.e. you don't go home for your dinner, you don't go to your local pub. You can get a bit of, um, you can get time away from your normal life to be able to concentrate on what you're doing. But of course, the problem with that is that you need to take time off work, which then means you have less time um, later in the year for maybe playing gigs or going on tour. So it's all a kind of question of mundane give and take, very banal give and take. And there's nothing you can really do about that. If you take two weeks off your, let's say, 10 working days off your um, schedule to record an album, that's 10 days. You might not be able to play festivals where you do get paid in theory. So again, there's a lot of positives to be said for finding a studio somewhere else. And then again, also with time constraints, sometimes maybe you need to pick a studio in the city you're from and just record over weekends. Bring what you have home, think about it, mull it over, go back over it and come back the next weekend. And literally just do Friday evening, Saturday, Sunday, Friday evening, Saturday, Sunday. It's not ideal, but the idea that musicians had the time to do all those things is something that 
that pretty much belongs in the past. Unless, of course, you have your own home studio, you have your own Pro Tools setup that you're just using with um, an Apple Mac or whatever you're using. This is, of course, possible if you're one of those bands that just trade files, cuts and pastes things, adds things in. The big, biggest problem is recording drums. You can't really do that uh, the same way without actually going into a drum room um, and setting up some mics. I mean, of course, you can trigger something. You could play a, an electronic kit and somebody could just send over the files. Then you add all your part in front of sitting in front of your screen. Many bands do this because there's so little money available from the industry for recording because there's no physical sales anymore, all this kind of stuff. So um, the, the the collapse of the music industry in terms of physical sales has a knock-on effect into how much money labels are willing to spend on bands recording. You get your money from the label, in theory, and it's up to you what you spend it on. If you if they give you €10,000 and you spend €1,000, you get to keep nine, in theory. But that means you've got to make a proper sounding record for a thousand euro, which if you're going to record proper big open sounding drums and want to go to a proper studios is impossible. Um, Because of course you need to pay engineers, you need to pay mastering, um, all these kind of things. So it's a strange catch 22 of a situation where you want your album to sound the best it possibly can, but at the same time, you are aware of the constraints as regards to the budget um, and the fact that the reality of making any um, royalties is pretty difficult or an insignificant consideration after making almost 20 albums. The amount of money I've made out of royalties, actually eye-breaking even and making money, is almost negligible, uh, almost minimal. So that's not really a consideration when you go into recording. You Try and do the best you can with the budget that you have, which very often for most bands means spending everything that they're given. Um, so with Primordial, like I said, we're usually about two thirds to three quarters prepared. And what we would do is, um, let's say the studio's in Dublin, the, maybe the evening before you go to the studio, you kind of prep it a bit, you look around, you visited maybe once or twice before, done a few recons, um, looked at the outboard gear, which is um, all the effects units. You look at what the studio has to offer in terms of a live room. Is it live? Is it dead? How is the sound of drums? What kind of amps do they have? What kind of pedals do they have? Now, the reality is that most outboard sound effects units, which were the processors through which the sound went um, or were put through, are all internal now. They're all internal to... And they're all basically apps, so to say. They're all internalized within the uh, computer that you're using. So in the olden days, the olden days, you would have used um, analog, analog tape reel, um, which now costs over a thousand euro for a, like a 14 minute reel, I think, which is pretty impractical to try and buy. We used to record on that in the 90s. Um, but the idea that you used to record in an analog way, if you think about analog, analog is vinyl, Digital is CD, i.e. the sound wave um, in the analog sound wave is curved, um, whereas if you think about it, the digital sound wave is um, pixelated. Now, it, these that's a very simple way of explaining it. But, um, I mean, of course, tiny, tiny, tiny digital, um, you know, audio pixelation, but it's still a digital process. The analog process is something quite different. So you would have used an analog desk, uh, proper mixing faders, each with a channel, um, very traditional, whereas now all of this is contained just in 
Pro Tools just on a computer, uh, similar to the garage band that I'm recording this into. So many people, many studios now are quite bare. They don't have the huge old desk. They don't really need it. But of course, the sound of a 1970s rock record, I would argue, is very difficult to replicate um, in a small space in a digital environment. It's a sort of a lost art, that Martin Birch, 1980, huge open drum sound, the, the sound of your everything from your Iron Maiden to your Fleetwood Max, um, to your Led Zeppelins, to whatever. This is a very hard, if not impossible, skill to replicate in the modern day. And also bands back then were spending a lot of money on records. Some were, some weren't, but there was skill, there was invention. You were placing drums in interesting rooms, trying to get different um, ambient sounds. Um, that kind of thing. This is a sort of a lost art. Anyway, well, I feel it is. Anyway, so we go into the studio, let's say the morning of the first day, you set up the drums, you've tried to source the best drum kit that you possibly can. Um, I always think of something that Mags from Academy used to say to me, he used to say you can't polish a turd, <laughs> which means basically um, if you're using awful instruments, awful gear, awful equipment, and you perform awfully, you can't really polish those things up entirely. Now, of course, you can change guitar sounds now internally. You can reamp, they call it, which is just change the guitar tones. But a bad snare sounds like a bad snare, unless, of course, you sample a snare online, etc., etc. But rather than fix everything at the end, it's better to start off with the best signal you can. So you try and find or source the best possible drum kit. Um, it's quite the art to setting things up. Sometimes I've known engineers who make um, almost like a tent, a teepee around the drums in a, in a big room to capture the sound. They're making um, specific kind of extra uh, tubes around the bass drum to capture the ambient sound, all of this kind of thing. And Primordial doesn't, fuck around we don't mess around with um the drums really usually simon is bang on the money um with his takes and unless we are writing something it's in the process where you know you're kind of going i'm not sure about the last section of that song um most of the drums will be first or second takes so if the band is locked into having all of the songs written then or written within the first, say, you might write the song, put the finishing touches that morning to the riff, to the idea. Simon is usually done within 20 takes, I would say, and usually within two days. So you'd spend most of the first day getting the first two takes right, checking all the sounds of the bass drum, the snare. Are you separating the, uh, the different signals? You know, Tom 1, Tom 2, Tom 3. Are they separate? Personally, I like things to bleed over a little bit. I don't, uh, I'm not into the idea of separating every tone. I think the drums should be the drums and I like a lot of ambient room noise and I like lots of noise, mistakes, um, tone with Dread Sovereign. I let the bass amp bleed into the drum mics. This doesn't bother me at all. This should be, it should sound like a really loud band playing in a room, which is what Dread Sovereign is. Uh, there's no playing through the desk. There's no playing through small amps. You're playing through a proper big stack, which is a big fuck off amp. Um, and there's no, I wouldn't do it any other way. Primordial is a little bit different because it's more layered and it's more, well, let's say musically articulate, musically sophisticated in a sense. So that first day, everyone has, usually everyone plays together in the same room. Um, or the same space at the same time you record the drums, you'll do what's called a scratch bass, 
and a scratch guitar, which is they're like guide guitars, guide bass, where you record um, along with the intention of going back over them to fix the signal. But very often, if they're good enough, they stay. Um, definitely for Dread Sovereign, my ambition is to do as little um, overdubbing as possible. So if I'm playing 80, 90% of that song in the pocket, um, then I'll just leave it. I don't care about the mistakes. Um, obviously, you've got to be in tune and stuff. But I'll never play the same song on the bass twice, um, ever. I'll always add in notes, scrapes, noises. Um, never, I'll never pick it the same way. And I like that. I've no interest in it being formulaic or always having the same feel. Uh, but with Primordial, sometimes, you know, sometimes 30, 40% of that first bass take might be kept. And Paul might drop in a few things where the tempo changes. But if it's done correctly, it might stay. Um, with the guitars, it's less likely that they'll stay because you're kind of sketching ideas out. You haven't colored in the palette yet. They're a bit black and white. Um, but that said, if if the tone you get off straight away is good, um, I think it's a good idea to you know try and while the drums are being done to get that good guitar tone and not trust in reamping, trust in fixing it. Trust in fixing as little as possible is my kind of motto really try and get things as good as they are right out of the gate because then it gives, gives you less headaches when inevitably something breaks down the line or you lose a day or two to something shutting down something that needs replacing that's just um, you always factor in something fucking up or um, I don't know somebody's car breaks down and they can't get into the studio that day to record this or that or the other you should always have a second and third thing prepared so if you're thinking, OK, on day three, we start bass. Uh, who knows? Maybe the bass amp doesn't work. You should. I mean, personally, I would always have a few vocal things that I think I could work out without needing the full song structure in place. Um, you need to have second, third arrangements in your head. You also need to maybe map out how you're going to spend your time. If you've got, say, to the name is dead was made in 10 or 11, 12 days total, um, which is very quick you kind of, if you're rushing ahead and going for it, just keep going. You don't need to dawdle for a day or two. It's not, I don't think you do. Just keep forging ahead, keep trusting your instinct, keep going for it. If you've got a bit more time, 20 days, it's good to make um, almost like a, a calendar projection of where you'd like to be. On the seventh day, we want to be here, etc., etc. And try as best as you can to stick to it. Personally, I'm a sort of night owl. I like working at night. This doesn't suit other people. So you try and have that division of labor which says, okay, you want to work at 10 a.m., then do the guitar at 10 a.m. I'll come in at 4 and start doing vocals. Personally, I like and one, two, three hours of really concentrated work where you're really in the zone, so to say, um, which is, sounds like a cliche, but true, where you're really up for it. Um, and you can't do that if you're tired, not for singing. Um, it doesn't work like that. So um, you you um, definitely mark in your calendar, okay, I think from four to seven, we're going to do it. A lot of engineers don't mind going late at night. Some don't. They want their evenings, et cetera, et cetera. But you should be kind of clear about this stuff before um, because it can cause kind of arguments and that kind of thing. Personally, um, I always being a night owl, I'm not going to be up at nine or ten in the morning singing. If you're tired, your voice sounds tired. Sing when you're up for it. And for me, that means in the evening. But, you know, you've got to make compromises with that. 
So you record these scratch bass and scratch guitars. So everything is done live. A lot of bands cut and paste drums. They play to a metronome, which is tick, 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 which keep, you know, a, a, a metronomic clock, which keeps, you know, you, you play with headphones on for the drums and it keeps you in time. Um, we never did that, ever. No Primordial album is made to a metronome. No Dread Sovereign album is made to a metronome. I've never played the bass to a metronome. I have no interest in that. If it goes, if it rolls a little bit in the timing, then that's how it is. That's how heavy metal was. And if it's good enough for Venom and the Misfits, then it certainly doesn't bother me. I don't care. Um, so I've never tried to apply too many things like that. In fact, they just, to be honest, um, trying to make things too perfect, like making tempo maps and all this kind of thing, it just irritates me and it... I'm A, probably too lazy, but B, definitely feel that it has no place in rock and roll. That's how I feel. Okay, sure, if you're playing in um, a super technical band, then totally I understand, but not for me. So you maybe roll on to starting doing bass, I'd say, on the start of the third day. If you're on a roll, um, you could get all of the bass done in one day. I don't see any reason why not. You go back over the scratch bits and you go, oh, this is pretty good. We could keep that. You drop in, which means that you're just recording um, over small little sections, just replacing bits. But if the feel is right, just leave it. And then the main body of work is the guitars. This is often very trial and error. Um, if a song is written by guitarist A, very often guitarist B will leave guitarist A to play all the parts. It depends how rehearsed you are. If you're a thrash band and you're going back and forth with different solos, okay, or you're all writing together. But very often many bands leave, I think they leave the idea to, well, this is your song, so you play most of the parts. This can lead to its own problems, I think. I think, personally, um, the best heavy metal records have, you know, Denner, Sherman, Hanneman, King, Holt, Honnold, um, K.K. Downing, um, Tipton, you know, they have different guitar tones and this is something that's been lost over the years. 70s and 80s bands, whether it's Voivod, Creator, Celtic Frost, Possessed, um, think of those bands as soon as you hear them, you, their tone. You can tell Tom G. Warrior's feedback, you know it's Celtic Frost and that is because they were all playing through different amps, different setups, different guitars. Um, it was virgin territory and now very much you're playing People aren't playing through amps, they're playing straight into the computer, straight into the processor, straight into, um, there's no amps involved. And they're just picking guitar sounds off basically lists of, you could call them guitar amp apps, whatever you want to say it. And it doesn't have the same feel. It's not the same as a big dirty amp sitting in the corner, a 1977 Marshall head with an old cab and whatever strange guitar using. And that's important. So we never use um, we never just play into the into pro tools we try and have amps and feedback and noise and that you can feel the heat of um, a band playing dread sovereign for example is very much like this everything is bleeding into everything is all of us playing in a room there has to be this reckless devil may care energy to uh, what we're doing which i think we sort of capture primordial is a little bit less devil may care but it's still got that feeling in it which is um I think it's partly a kind of Irish way that we're a bit sort of reckless and fly by the seat of our pants sometimes. But definitely um, the old guitar tones 
are something that I would really aspire to. Some bands layer the guitar two, you know, f- three, four, five, six times uh, with the rhythm guitars. I don't see any need to do that because I think that it. What that m- means then is that the guitar is taking up almost all of the dynamic range. So if you're recording six layers of rhythm guitar and then you wonder why your drums sound small, the reason is because you've got six layers of rhythm guitar. I think you should have two layers either side, uh, two rhythms and the solos or harmonies in the middle. Um, I would even peel back the distortion personally. Um, I prefer the bass taking up the bottom end. I always have bass distortion. Um, I would always consider it part of even a little grind in Primordial, but definitely Dread Sovereign, it's hard motorhead Lemmy style distortion. So the guitar doesn't need to be that heavy. They don't need to fight each other. I'd rather have the bass um, without a doubt underpinning the whole sound. It has to be really, really um, eminent in the sound. That's what I like personally. Motorhead, 1980 kind of style, uh, old man of war, that kind of thing. So I don't need a huge guitar sound. And I think that's one of the things that's very evident in modern heavy metal of the last 20 years is a very compressed, huge dynamic range guitar tone, um, which just to me takes up far too much space. Um, And then you have, you know, so that means you have to have very clicky, pointed drums poking out through that because the guitar is just taking up too much dynamic range. This is my personal um, choice. I prefer less distortion, less gain, Um, richer guitar tones and to definitely try as hard as possible to have both rhythm guitars on either side very very different tones try and have guitar players not playing through the same amp and not playing through the same guitar not just plugging into each other's pedals and sounds try and have completely different tones that's what I would aspire to when you think about Hello Waits or something you know who's Hanuman and you know who's King they're very different guitar tones and that I think is Again, a kind of a lost art, but I think is absolutely essential. Um, at least I feel it's sonically essential. It's a separation of instruments. The band has to sound like a band playing warts and all, mistakes and everything, feedback. But the separation of instruments and tones is very, very important. So getting the best, richest tone to begin with. So playing the most expensive guitar through the, maybe not necessarily the most expensive, but definitely having a very distinctive tone. Like Dread Sovereign rehearses loud and I would pay a lot of attention to what I want things to sound like. Um, I won't play rehearsal through a tiny little amp and not bother with the pedals just to play. So I'm always thinking about the tone and the sound. Um, and so you have to have a very kind of f- strong focus about the definition of the sound that you want. And I think with Primordial, because many of the chords are not bar chords, they're not... They're not um, downstroke. They're not palm muted, which is just guitar phrases for. It's a very unheavy metal way of playing heavy metal because they're full open chords. And that, that is a very in, uh, different way of playing heavy metal. So you need a very specific tone and sound. If it's too brutal, too heavy, you won't hear the richness in the notes. So that means you have to have less distortion, in my opinion. Um, because the heavier you try and make it, the more um, rough it tends to be and the less you hear the notes. But of course, sometimes roughness is entirely part of the game as well. So you're sort of living on your instinct with each song. You're living with your impulses. And to me, the impulses must be that it has to sound like a band playing in a room together. It has to sound vital. It has to sound energetic. It has to sound like you absolutely mean it with complete conviction. Um, So therefore, the diction of the vocals is 
highly important. It, the vocals should never just sound like a noise over the top to me. You have to understand every word without a lyric sheet. You must have sound. You must understand the intent. Even if you don't understand the English, you have to know exactly what the mood is. That's always been something that's ultra important to me. Um, it's something you learn from 60s, 70s and 80s singers, from the Dio's, from the Paul Rogers, from the Phil Moggs, from the Phil Linnets. Is um, diction is absolute, and so I never, um, I never cloud the vocals in too much reverb. I never put them too far back. They have to kind of sit within the music, but also a little bit on top. Um, very often, a very black metal trait of the 1990s was to bury the vocals behind the music. It's not really my style. Like I said, I'd rather have the two guitars panned very hard left and right with different tones, the bass taken up the middle in a with some heaviness, some meatiness, some distortion, and the vocals sitting just on top of that, and a very, very open, very um, 1980, 1977 style drum sound. That's That's my perfect idea. And everything to have a richness of tone that doesn't require much mixing. It sits in really well together. That's um, what I would like. And you've got to mix quickly. You can't spend ages going back and back and back and over it. So then maybe let's say after you take three, four, no, let's say a little bit longer. You probably need five days, four or five days for the guitar. This is all in an ideal situation. Don't forget we made To the Nameless Dead, recorded, uh, mixed in about 10 and a half, 11 days. Six out, five back in for the mix. Um, but, you know, if you have two weeks, sometimes you have three days. So, you know, Dreads Alvin and Made for Doom, the bell tolls in two days where you just play live, plug in, don't mix, don't spend a lot of time mixing. But what you have to do then is um, not drag the arse, as they say, out of the guitars. Try and be focused. Um, you know, it's a good idea to, I think, record some alternate harmonies, but not too many because it'll be a nightmare to mix. You just get super distracted by... Um, if you may have too many choices, I think, when you're mixing, then that can become very distracting. Sometimes it's better to not just record every idea that you have because once it comes to, like I said, mixing um, and you're working under the clock, you're then thinking, oh, what does this sound better or that sound better? It's the same with vocals. I'll record, if I'm rolling on a good chorus, I'll do four, five, six, maybe seven layers of vocals, but they're harmonies or they're backups. Uh, if, a, if a verse feels good and you do it in one take, you just leave it like that. Don't make two, three, four takes and then you're deliberating over, does this is this better than that? Better if it sounds like the right thing, go with it because it probably is. But if you give yourself six choices of ah, uh, 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 or whatever um, as the end of a line, any one of them could make sense. So kind of what's the point in giving yourself six headaches one maybe two choices um, strong choices so you're not asking the engineer hey can you just cut and paste whatever you think sounds best that's not the best idea and then you generally have let's say 70% 80% of the body of guitars done um, but you would leave the harmonies for after the vocals so that for me that means generally when you're recording an album for a week and a half a week you're not doing anything you're kind of just taking part, um, making notes, helping with the structures, trying to not be a pain in the arse. One of the things in the studio that's really important is to know when to not be there because it can get pretty fraught. There can be a lot of fights, a lot of arguments. So sometimes to know when to walk away and sit in the local pub and read your book is very important to not be around because sometimes 
especially when you're younger, you think you need to throw your input into everything, throw your ore into everything. And in actuality, all you're doing is just sticking a stick between the spokes of the wheels that are going around and that you have to trust each other to do your own job properly. So um, the guitar player has to trust the singer that they're going to do their job. Of course, you have input, you have um, you, you know, help along the way. But certainly for doing singing, I don't like to sing to the whole band just sitting on the couch reading magazines, you know, kind of half listening, going, oh, I don't know about that, because then what you're doing is you're literally auditioning. It becomes like um, a sort of heavy metal X factor. And then everybody is pitching in going, well, I don't. What about this? I don't do that. Um, I kind of refuse to do that in a way. Of course, it's fine. With, you know, as you get older, it's fine. You just let people get on with their jobs. But in the old days, it would have been singing to committee. And that caused so many arguments and so many fights, because the reality is people just have to kind of trust your instinct. But if you have a band of people who all don't really trust each other and all want to impose their will on each other, this is what leads to huge fights and huge arguments. Sometimes um, you have an idea that's just completely over the top. There's probably many um, takes of songs that are sitting on cassettes from back in the day that were far too histrionic, far too over the top lyrics that were just kind of ridiculous that thankfully the next morning I went, no, yeah, you're right. That was awful. Or ideas for leads or solos or things and you go, ah, doesn't sound great. But the vocals, of course, are the thing that sets the kind of um, the ship off in a certain direction, the tone, the the meaning, the intent very often. And so um, I write the lyrics and I'm patently aware that lots of times in rehearsal, nobody's paying attention to what the words are. So you do have to kind of have be mindful of what is the tone of the song? What is the feeling of the song that's being written? Are you completely changing it with your lyrics? A good example of Primordial is the song Journey's End, or Bitter Harvest from Journey's End. Here's a song that Kieran meant um, as one thing that I took and wrote these quite horrific sort of nihilistic lyrics over. Now, it's still a cool song, but in my opinion, the lyrics don't really fit the tone of the music. And that was something you learned because we we're 22 or 23 years old. Um, you learn to try and fit things in together. And this is just something you... Uh, accumulate knowledge as a musician you begin to learn like okay I have the feeling of what this song is Wheeled Lightning to Split the Sun was written in about 45 minutes do you just have the two riffs and I just thought okay I know what this song I think is trying to say so you're trying to interpret each other's feelings and that's just something you learn uh, more and more as the time goes by you learn certain little tricks and certain little oh you know you have an idea like as Rome burns in the middle, the sing, sing, sing to the slaves. I have this idea of just rising crowd chant, almost like, um, you know, something biblical when the far off crowd is addressing, um, I suppose, Pontius Pilate and Barabbas and all that kind of situation. That's what was in my head. Sing, sing. So you layer that 10, 15, 20 times and make it a rising noise but these are these are ideas that you know spontaneous ideas that just come to you and you should probably roll with them if you trust yourself as a musician so the singing i don't fuck around two days maybe i'd like it to be done in two three days three days third day maybe add the harmonies but i i've rattled out say for example dread sovereign for doom the bell tolls the song 12 bells soul and tail blah, blah, blah. 12 bells toll in salem is one take all the way through straight through um, I've done songs very often that are just one take all the way. Uh, don't mess with them. 
add a layer maybe to the chorus. That's it. Um, I think Seed of Tyrants is a kind of a song like that. God's Old Snake, I remember, writing the lyrics 30, 40 minutes before going into recording. Um, everybody being stressed at me going, you know, you have what, what's your idea for the song? And you think to yourself, well, okay, I trust in myself. I know I want to write a song about Alistair Crowley. I have some words in my head. You just disappear for half an hour, 45 minutes, and it's done. You trust in yourself to do it. And then you're improvising sometimes while you're recording through words, um, through making amendments in your head as you're singing, trying to, it's very important also to, I think it's called anomatopoeia, I think, which is the, the, the sort of um, the flow of the words, hard and soft consonants. There are certain words and like that you can't start singing a line with because you're you're rising up into it. So you have to learn how to duh, huh, buh, huh, like these hard consonants. The is a will fit with the drum pattern with the bass drum. Um, and all, very often I will start with a hard consonant at the start of a bass drum rhythm and then in my head I'm listening to it and you land the note um, after maybe you know a certain section of the bar you land on another hard consonant as opposed to a a o o kind of noise and so um, that's my sort of style not to be too regimented but I do often well I am thinking about it within the structure of the rhythm of the very much the bass and the drums but I like it to be it's sometimes off kilter or disorientating or not to be the uh, what you expect a good example of this is Last Call on Exile Among the Ruins um, initially the verses were um, too tightly locked in to the rhythm and uh, it didn't sound like me so we unlocked the tightness so to say and um went back to the drawing board, did a little bit again and went across notes and made some curious natural. To me, they're natural decisions to other people. Um, they would say, well, what? I don't understand why you put that in that section. To me, they're natural. But I like the kind of sometimes grating dissonance or to not always follow what would be the normal rhythm. Like when we did Will Lightning to Split the Sun, nobody really understood what I was trying to do with the verses but it, to, in my head they made the most sense but you trust with your your instinct and people are going what that doesn't make any sense and you're just kind of going just trust me in an hour you'll see what I mean and you know over the years as you learn 75, 80, 90% of the time that's that's correct um, or at least a version of correct because let's be honest you could do the singing 20 different times 20 different ways um, and it could all make sense but you've got to settle on one or two so you finish uh, the singing usually two, three days. I'd like I said, I don't fuck around. I don't want to be spending um, any longer than three days. It's just no. So then you add the guitar harmonies, which we're waiting for the vocals to fill in, uh, the, which are kind of like the final little thing that you put in. Maybe acoustic guitar flourishes. Maybe there's a tiny bit of organ backing something up way back um, in the noise. Um, or you know little layers of back and vocals and you're you're done um, you try then you try and think about the track list very often I'd prepare the cover or ideas for the cover three four five months in advance because there's nothing worse than having an album recorded and everybody arguing about the artwork it's a good idea sometimes to settle on the title like in my head right now I have the title for the next record and I'm already thinking about artwork and we haven't even got any date for doing anything that's just kind of how I like to sort of process all of that kind of stuff. And so um, you try and be as prepared as possible. 
And also at the same time, I would work on three or four or five potential different covers because you anticipate that people won't like this or won't like that. And that's just sort of natural as well. Always be prepared or have a second, third, fourth option because, like I said, very often something will break, something will um, shut down. Maybe you come in one day and the base doesn't work and there's no other base and you need to get it repaired. Be ready to get up there with another uh, go. OK, I have a vocal idea. I want to do something. Let's work on this. Or, um, you know, somebody's car is broken down. OK, so we, we there's always something to do. So you're not sitting around doing nothing because that's wasting money and it's wasting time and energy, um, which I have. I just can't abide that at all. And like I said, there are times when you have to learn to not be there because it'll just cause arguments, etc. It's a it's a there's a they're just they're life hacks, as they call them now to recording. I think that bands should have a space then between recording and mixing to just to take the raw, um, the unmixed version home, listen to it, sit with it, think what you might want to do with the bass drum or the the bass and how you envisage the mix to be. Don't leave it too long, maybe two weeks to digest, take it home, play it on different stereos, play it on different um, mediums. And then go back to somewhere else take ideally at least three days for the mix but for any more and more than that is a luxury so four or five is great once you've broken the back of the first song they all generally fall into place a bit after that once you've got the snare and the drum and the tom sound that you like very much the drums then fall into place throughout everything so that first song or two mixing is the most complicated and you really need to be in a good headspace when you're mixing don't be tired irritable cranky we had certain we had situations with one album where the internet connection wasn't working properly so we were sending mixes across it's also a good idea for not maybe not the whole band to be there certainly i like being there personally and i've mixed some albums just on my own like storm before cam for example um but um you know certain people have different ears they hear things better they hear mistakes they hear electronic hum they hear noises um, some people have a better overall feeling, but you've got to, within your band, determine who is that person. Because if you're all sitting there with all different ideas, then the power of suggestion is, do you think that bass sound is loud enough? Then you're listening to it. And then the question leads you to think it is or it isn't. So you've got to be able to try and step outside the situation and try and hear the overall tone and not just listen to what your part is. Um and so, um, you know, that situation was mixes were being sent, but the Internet wasn't really working properly. People are coming back four, five, six hours later going, I don't like this. But of course, when you're mixing, you're you've got you're working under the clock. So you're forging ahead with ideas and things and you can't then go back to, you know, to maybe not zero, but to one or two and then start again and move forward. You've got to keep moving. You've got to be in a good frame of mind. You've got to be. To be honest, upbeat, you've got to be focused, you've got to be in a good headspace. If you're irritable, tired, um, angry, annoyed, all of these things can cloud your judgment or your focus of what you're trying to do. So um, if you're like having heavy insomnia and getting up at nine or ten in the morning to try and mix, you're going to do it with a foggy head. Um, So whatever environment or place you can manage to try and be in to be as relaxed as possible, you do it and then you push it. Now, very often I've been in mixing sessions that take 16, 20 hours a day or you're doing it for over a day. And that's not ideal, but everybody is trying to make their name. Every engineer is trying to make their name and do it as well as possible 
to get further work. So very often you, whether you want to or not, you end up in a situation where you're overworking. But um, again, trusting in instincts and, and realizing that heavy metal isn't an exacting process. It's not, um, it's not mathematical. Sometimes the greatest albums have flaws. Gathering Wilderness has flaws um, uh, that to us are more prominent than maybe to somebody who listens to it. But those flaws are what give it character. Um, whether it's Bathory or Venom or everything, you could, you know, fundamentally there's flaws with all those things. But that's what that's what errs to be human, so to speak. And I think those are very important. So, um, listening to metal that sounds computerized, digitized, like a computer playing, I it alienates me because I want to hear the dirt under the fingernails, the bloody knuckles, the mistakes, all this kind of stuff, because that's part of being human and being in a band and you know it's nothing is ever perfect so at some stage you have to just let go of a record you have to let go of it that some part of it might not be exactly as you wanted to but in the fullness of time over years you'll come back to it and go yeah I understood why I let that go so that's a very important thing to understand is being able to just let go and go okay this album this is what it is um, some things I like better in other albums some things I prefer in other different records but it is what it is. Um, and and it, it just captures you at a moment in your life, a moment in time, a moment in the band's lifetime. And that you don't need to constantly pick it over and over. And um, you don't need to keep going over those diary entries and editing them. Um, just at some stage, it's out. It's out there. It's done. And you'll find probably unless it's a really horrendous experience that going back in years, you'll go, okay, yeah, I understood why we let that go. Then once all everything is mixed, um, you just have to send it off to be mastered. Mastering is a strange thing. Now it's more important than it used to be, I think. Um, you can change dynamic ranges and tones and textures in the mastering. Um, and there used to be a sort of mastering loud war that was going on 15, 20 years ago. But a good mastering engineer is worth his weight or her weight in gold. Um, who can maybe clean up uh, a dynamic range or something that may be niggling with you um, and make it punchy. Uh, you would, this needs some more middle. This mids needs some more high mids. We need that. Can we bring out a bit of this? Um, so, but you don't want to then use it to re also remix. So you kind of want to have a very straight, simple me message. I think it needs more middle, um, but not keep going back and forward with it. I've been in situations where I would admit that I've become very difficult about the mastering and made someone do it three, four, five times. But anyway, so then once it's mastered, it's sent to the label and then you're just in the queue for the release. Um, so there you go. Different platforms uh, will compress the music differently. Um, obviously, if you buy the original on vinyl, it sounds a bit different to the CD. That's the two best formats to have it. Um, Spotify has its own bit rate, which compresses the files. If you're listening on YouTube, um, the render might be different. So the records can sound a bit different depending on the platform. I would always say vinyl with it sounds the best. But you need, if you have a cheap record player, everything will sound cheap. Think about it in the sense that the cable between the stereo and the speakers is what transfers the sound. If those cables are cheap, your vinyl will sound probably a bit cheaper than it was intended to. So one of the first things I did when I had any money ever was have a, was buy a very expensive separate stereo. And that made all these records I was listening to for years sound very different. 
Um, and that's when the beauty of Number the Beast or all these records, Don't Break the Oath, really come into their own when you hear what a really great engineer has done. The Martin Birches, the Fleming Rasmussens have done in the 80s. And you go, oh, my God, listening to Damage Incorporated through a proper stereo on the original vinyl um, with, uh, you know, the fresh needle and all that kind of stuff. Anyway. So your medium, how you choose to listen to these things. If you listen to all your music on computer speakers, then, you know, all the engineering tricks in the world are gonna, aren't going to change the fact that you're listening to music on computer speakers. I wouldn't recommend it. If you're listening on cheap headphones, things sound like they sound cheap. Um, so, again, the better medium you have for listening to the music, um, the bigger difference it makes. Now, I understand for most people, I'm talking about recording techniques despite the fact that most people don't listen to music on proper stereos. So on some sense, you're make you're putting all this effort into recording and then you realize people are listening to on their just on their Mac or whatever. What can we do as musicians? You want to try and do the best you can with the songs that you have. Anyway, my friends, a 50 minute ramble on just the recording process. That's kind of how I approach it. Sort of old fashioned. Be focused. Trust in your instincts. Um, try and get analog good signals, separate them, have hard tones, um, dynamic rich tones, uh, and don't overthink things. And also know when to fuck off and not hassle everyone. All right, there you go, Nemtianka's Guide to Recording. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 